Hi, welcome to the Holton Baptist Church podcast. We are really glad that you have joined us and we pray that the message you're about to hear will really bless you, encourage you and help you to encounter God afresh for yourself. Great to have you with us. Enjoy. Lovely to see you all, whether you're in the person, in person in the building or whether you're watching us online or listening later. Uh, we're just praying that God will really touch our hearts this morning through uh, our ongoing exploration. If you've been following, you know that we have been in the story of Nehemiah, and we're taking that further today. So let's kick in with the PowerPoint, please, Steve. And hopefully all being well. Not only can you see it from the front, but I can see it at the back as well, which is a bonus. So... A little bit of background, a little bit of history. Nehemiah, the story so far. Jerusalem, conquered and destroyed in 587 BC. The people are exiled to Babylon. Jeremiah, during that period, he stays in Jerusalem, but he prophesies that that period is going to last for about 70 years, which is not good news if you've just been exiled and you're not going home tomorrow. But time passes. Cyrus becomes the emperor of Persia. And he orders the Jews to return to their own country in about 539 BC. In due time, a new emperor arises, Artaxerxes. Spell that if you want to. He becomes emperor of Persia in about 465 BC. And then he allows people to return. It's one of the policies of the Persian Empire to resettle people in their own countries. So he gives Ezra permission in about 458 BC to go back to Jerusalem, and Ezra's job is to rebuild the temple. A few years later, about 445 BC, we're into Nehemiah, and that's what we've been pursuing over these last few weeks here. Nehemiah, you might remember, hears news from Jerusalem. He's devastated to learn that the city is still in ruins. There might be a temple there, but the walls are broken down, the houses are broken down, it's a mess. And he asks permission from Emperor Artaxerxes to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall. So that's what happens in the first couple of chapters of the book of Nehemiah. If you've been following us, you'll know that. Uh, Chapter 3, Sue led us a couple of weeks ago in a wonderful, powerful uh, challenge to teamwork. Chapter 3 is all about teamwork in Nehemiah, and we are called to be members of that team as well as we take on the task of the kingdom of God here today. So all is looking good, but if you remember, there was a little faint rumble in Nehemiah chapter 2 a few weeks back that all was not completely well. And these words cropped up, but when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What's this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? And I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Well, that sounds all well and good, but the honeymoon is over. Let's have a a blank screen for a few minutes, Steve. And let's hear what happens when we get to chapter 4 in Nehemiah. Let's hear the story. When Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall... He became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? 
Will they finish in a day? Can they bring these stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burnt as they are? Tobiah the Amorite, who was at his side, said, What are they rebuilding? Even a fox climbing over it, over it would break it down, their wall of stones. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they've thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Amorites, and all the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead and that there were gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people of Judah said, The strength of our labourers is, is giving out, and, there's not, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, also our enemies said, Before they know it or see it, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to their work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, whatever you turn, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows and armour. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we're widely separated from each other along the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, Join us there. God will fight for us. So we continued the work, with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so that they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. Wow. That is quite something to visualise. Imagine what was going on there. Okay, back onto the uh, slides, please, Steve. And uh, we've had that one. Right. See, the, the thing is, I find it very easy to imagine that when Ezra went back, when Nehemiah went back, they were going back to an empty country. 
They've been told, you can go back to your land, you can get on, you can build a temple, you can build the walls, all's fine. But of course it wasn't empty, there were people there. So let's just have a little look at the geography of the place. It's very hard to find a copyright-free map of Palestine online, so here's one I drew earlier. <coughs> it's very easy, you just get a wiggly land on the left, Mediterranean on the left, land on the right, Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. Okay. Uh, there's Jerusalem, slap bang in the middle. If you head off to the northeast, you will end up at Babylon in about 1,678 miles' time. If, on the other hand, you choose to go northwest, where do you end up then? Hastings. <laughs> 3,016 miles, and Google told me it would take 51 hours via the A3. So there. <laughs> I don't think that's the A3 round Guildford. I think that's a motorway through France. <laughs> anyway, I'm not going to put that to the test. So... You see, the country wasn't empty. Uh, not only were there remnants of people from Old Testament years earlier on, but, but they were... St- I mean, here we are. We've got Sanballat. We've heard his name already in the reading. Occupying the area of Moab to the east of the Dead Sea. Uh, not far from Jerusalem. A bit further up, you have Tobiah the Ammonite, occupying the area, funnily enough, that the Ammonites lived in. And he also uh, wasn't far away from Jerusalem. On the other side... Heading a little bit south, further south than my map allows is Geshem. And he too is not that far from Jerusalem. When you put all that together, Nehemiah's got a task on his hand. These are people who don't particularly welcome the Jews to come back, who don't want to see them there. All right, maybe a temple's one thing, that's just an area of worship, but, but walls, rebuilding a city, now that represents something quite different. That represents a threat to their authority. You see, Tobiah... Sanballat and Geshem weren't just odd individuals who happened to live there. They were provincial governors set there by the emperor of Persia. And uh, when they saw walls going up, when they saw defences being put in place, that's when they began to feel, hang on, something's happening here. This is a threat. We are not happy with this situation. And so chapter 4 details the sort of opposition that arose. And we're going to whiz through this pretty quickly because it's pretty straightforward. Here is Nehemiah, busy building his wall with his trowel in one hand and his sword in the other. And we've already encountered some of the things that really unsettled him. So these guys, Sambala and Tobiah and co, started off by questioning his motives. What are you doing, they said? Are you rebelling against the king? Well, Nehemiah knew he wasn't, but as soon as that question is asked, it sows a seed of doubt, doesn't it? They made fun of him. What do you think you're doing? This is a feeble plot. Look at these walls. Stones are rubbish. You're not going to get anywhere with that. It's not going to stand up. When that didn't work, they began actually to plot what they could do to attack uh, Nehemiah and his troops in the process of building. And then you get the people themselves. This is a different sort of opposition. This is the Jews involved in the building saying, we're exhausted, we're knackered, we're shattered, it's too much to do, there's a lot here, these stones are heavy, Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're just not getting on with it. So Nehemiah had plenty of things that were preying on his mind, plenty of attacks on him and the work that he was called by God to do. The question is, how did he cope? What did he do about these things? Well, the first thing was, He trusted in God. This is a task which is not my idea, he says. This is God's idea and God is going to see it through. He is going to strengthen us. I trust in him that he's not going to let us down. 
We've already encountered in Nehemiah the importance of prayer. Right from the very beginning in chapter 1, when he prayed before he asked the governor for permission to go back, when he's been round the walls, a secret reconnaissance trip, he prays. Here, he prays. Uh, as soon as things get tough, hear us, our God. You know, we pray about it and let's hand it to God. But Nehemiah was also a man who took practical action. Uh, okay, sword in one hand, trowel in the other. Post guards behind the vulnerable places. Look out, be realistic. Don't just sort of trundle along, uh, letting it all go by. Uh, get your act together and see what needs to be done. And he was also a man who was very good at encouragement, getting alongside his other workers, giving them the courage, giving them the strength to do what needed to be done. So, ah, and setting an example. He didn't say, well, I'm the, I'm, I'm the man in charge here. You do this, you do that, and I'll just sort of sit back and watch. He got on with the job. He set an example by staying up late, by not, going to, not changing his clothes even when he went to water, you know, all of this sort of thing. Nehemiah is a role model for how to handle pressure, how to handle opposition. And that's the sort of situation we find in chapter 4, which we've just read. But when I was thinking about today, and I was so blessed by Sue's handling of chapter 3 a few weeks ago, I thought we can't stop with Nehemiah. We've got to say, well, okay, what else can we learn about opposition. So here's Jesus. Here's one I drew earlier as well. <laughs> My artistic skills wouldn't pass many exams, but anyway, here's Jesus. See, Jesus faced so much opposition in his own life, didn't he? Hebrews reminds us, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. How did opposition come to Jesus? His identity. One of the high points in the ministry of Jesus was his baptism. The dove that alighted from heaven, the voice that said, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. And what happens straight afterwards? He's thrust out into the desert to be tempted. And each of the temptations attacks the identity of Jesus. If you are the son of God, if you're the son of God, turn the stones to bread. If you're the son of God, throw yourself off the highest point. If you're the son of God, this, that and the other. The whole thing, Jesus' identity was attacked and undermined by temptation. His family. In John's Gospel, there's an occasion when his brothers say to him, well, you go on up to Jerusalem, we're going to hang around here. And it says, because they didn't believe in him. There's also another time when Jesus is surrounded by crowds of people and he's teaching in a house and you can't get near him. So his mother and his brothers are outside because they say it's out of his mind to have his own family not supporting him must have represented considerable opposition to Jesus. Local people. He stands up in the synagogue of Nazareth and preaches a rip-roaring sermon based on Isaiah 61. And what happens? The people take him outside to the cliff on which the town is built and try and throw him off. That's not a good start to ministry. He walks straight through the middle of them because he's who he is. He's surrounded by popular followers as his ministry develops but then he begins to teach them hard things and again it's John who talks about it in terms of Jesus saying about his body and his blood and it says a lot of people said we can't cope with this and they stopped following him from that point on so his popular fan base if you like began to desert him am I doing the right thing is this what God wants of, my, of me discouragement 
What about the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commands. And he says, I've done all these. Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, you need to do one thing, sell your possessions, give to the poor and follow me. And the man turned away because he couldn't do that. Jesus must have felt quite discouraged by that because this guy was not far from the kingdom but he wasn't willing to make that step, that final step. So discouragement, I think, was part of the things that Jesus had to deal with. The religious leaders, of course, the Pharisees. It's not very far into the Gospels when we read the Pharisees are making plots how they can kill Jesus. We get up to the final week of his life and that accelerates and takes shape with the betrayal and the arrest and the imprisonment and the high priest himself Asking Jesus, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Most High God? And Jesus says, I am. And the high priest says, well, that's blasphemy. And he rips his clothes and condemns Jesus to death. Plenty of opposition. Disciples, well, could you not watch with me one hour in the Garden of Gethsemane? Peter, who denied him. Peter, who earlier on had said, this shan't happen to you, Jesus. And Jesus turns around and says, get behind me, Satan whole raft of things that Jesus himself had to handle in his daily life, in his ministry. So how does he do it? He does it by quoting scripture. Jesus was immersed in the Bible. And particularly we find it in those three temptations right at the beginning. The Bible says this, this is what the scripture says, you shan't tempt the Lord your God. The more we are immersed in scripture, the more we are familiar with it and can use it as our language, the more we are equipped to deal with the opposition that comes. Jesus was, of course, a man of prayer. Before he chose the 12 disciples, Luke tells us that he spent the night in prayer. After his first exciting day of encountering people, Mark tells us that he went off by himself to pray and the disciples had to come looking for him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, of course, it was prayer that uh, strengthened him in those hours before his arrest and trial and execution time with God in all his busyness in all the pressures of people around him in all the opposition that he was experiencing Jesus withdrew regularly and took time with God that's such a hard thing to do isn't it in our busy lives because we are so busy we say how can I make time to pray how can I make time to read the Bible I've got to do this I've got to, I've got to be at church I've got to prepare a sermon I've got to practice the music no time to take time out with God but Jesus did that's our example And also friends. For all that the other disciples sometimes let him down, he sought their company. He wanted Peter, James and John with him when he went to Jairus' house. He wanted Peter, James and John with him in the Garden of Gethsemane because he needed their company, he needed their strength. And there too, something for us to learn about the importance of each other as we support one another through the opposition that we face. So... What about us? You and me. Ordinary folks. Well, do we experience opposition? Is life plain sailing? Is it all straightforward being a Christian? I doubt that anybody here could say yes to all of those. But we experience all sorts of things similar to Nehemiah, similar to Jesus. Doubts. Is this really true? (laughs) Am I just imagining my faith? Is the Bible to be trusted? How many of us have disappointments in our lives? How many of us 
struggle with a family that isn't necessarily supportive and not following the path that we have followed and we've encouraged them to follow, but they've chosen not to. And sometimes that can be directly mocking and sometimes that can just be the absence of seeing faith grow in their lives. Perhaps at work. Perhaps, I don't know, in the media, Christians are often ridiculed, aren't they? What about the cost of being a Christian? If you're a member of the church, you will be giving to the church. We've had an offering this morning. Some will have put money in that. Some will have had a bank transfer uh, once a month or once a week or whatever. There is a cost. And you think, well, I'd really like to build that extension. I'd really like to have that holiday. I'd really like that new car, whatever. But I'm giving to God. I can't afford it. There is a cost to being a Christian, is there not? And the cost of time as well that we commit to serving the church and serving the Lord in society. We can sometimes feel let down by people. We can sometimes take a lot of hard knocks in our lives when it doesn't make sense. Why has this happened to me? Why have you allowed that disaster, that tragedy, that failure, that pain, that sickness? And sometimes opposition comes in the shape of the church. As a minister, I met too many people who'd been hurt in previous years by the church, which was unsympathetic, unsupportive, lacking in understanding, and alienated them. It wasn't, it wasn't God who had let them down. Sadly, it's the church that can let us down. And then, as we've seen and heard this morning, the reality of actual persecution in a country like South Sudan, in a country like Syria or Afghanistan, but sometimes too, in our own country. It's getting harder as a Christian to maintain godly standards, isn't it? Because the media come down, sometimes the law comes down, and we are persecuted for the values and the standards that we believe are right. Lifestyle challenges. In a society where morals change and acceptance of things which didn't used to be right are now okay, we have the challenge, how do I live as a Christian in the society How do I deal with my sexuality? How do I deal with my identity in a way which is godly? How do I live a holy life? Holiness isn't a popular word these days, but it's one which we are called to live by. All sorts of things that you and I experience, some of which we've seen in Nehemiah, some of which we've seen in Jesus. And how do we deal with it? Well, trusting God's the the bedrock, isn't it? holding on to that faith, holding on to Jesus at a time when sometimes things don't make sense. Scripture, just as important for us as it was for the Lord himself, to be immersed in the Bible, to know it, to read it, to understand it, to talk about it, to discuss it in small groups, uh, wherever you can. Get to know the Bible, get to know what it means. Read it in a contemporary translation. At the men's breakfast yesterday, Mick read the story of Saul from the New Century Bible, and I thought, wow, I haven't heard it like that before. That's great. That really made sense. It came alive for me. Read the Bible, and if it's too hard, don't start with Leviticus or all the names in Nehemiah. Skip them. Call them Fred and John and Bill and Sarah instead. Don't get bogged down, but do get your heart into the Scriptures. Encouragement. See, I'm, I'm weaving these into these others because they are part of the warp, warp and the weft, the woof, the woof and the weft, what's the word of life? <laughs> no, not the wolf, that's the dog. <laughs> the, 
the fabric of life, the structure of life, these are things not to be put in a little compartment when we go to church on Sunday. These are things that we need to weave into the whole of our lives when we're meeting these situations, trusting God's scripture and encouragement, the encouragement of others. Seek it out. Practical action. If you feel vulnerable, as we read in in Nehemiah 4, that there were areas of the wall which were vulnerable, so that's where Nehemiah set guards. And you and I will all know the areas of our lives that we are particularly vulnerable to temptation or to you know, ungodly thoughts or whatever. Well, be aware of that and take practical action to deal with those situations. Don't go there. Don't entertain that thought. Think of something, you know, Paul says, don't, if there's anything noble or kind or goodly or God, think about these things. Practical action that we can take. Prayer. Prayer, so important to Nehemiah, so important to Jesus, so important to us. I sometimes get a little bit overwhelmed when I read the church newsletter on a Saturday night or Friday and see how many prayer meetings there are, and I think, oh my goodness me, I'm guilty of not going to too much. And I feel a bit daunted by that, but what it's saying is prayer, find a place to pray, find a time which suits you to pray, find a way to pray, but somehow pray, because that is our communication with God, that's keeping us in touch with him and keeping those uh, lines of communication open. Friends, look around. These are our Christian friends. Are the people, we're, we're for each other. You know that. We've got each other's backs. We're here to support one another. We're here to encourage one another. We're here to be there on the end of the phone, on the end of an email or a text. When you say, I'm, I'm really struggling, will you pray for me? We're not just a bunch of random people who happen to be in this building on a Sunday morning. With the body of Christ, the body which is organic, works together to produce the fruit of the kingdom of God in our individual lives and in the life of the church overall. Time with God, like Jesus, time with God is so important. Opposition, we all experience it. It takes different shapes and forms for us, but it's all out there. But God has resourced us in so many ways to deal with the opposition, just as he resourced Nehemiah to deal with the opposition that he faced. In 1 Peter 5.8 it says this, Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Opposition is not about being defeated. It's not about being Oh, intimidated, I can't do this, I'm going to give up. It's about overcoming. Nehemiah is about overcoming. And I want to encourage us all to be overcomers. And to look at these words from Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 11. Read that chapter. Dwell in that chapter. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And if you read on from those verses, Paul outlines some of those elements of the armour that God provides for us and the ways in which they protect us and enable us to be victorious in our Christian living. What do we learn from Nehemiah chapter 4 about opposition? Well, be alert, be strong, be prayerful, and continue to pray the Lord's Prayer, which, of course, Nehemiah didn't have in that form, but we do. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Amen. 
Thanks for joining us on the Holton Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to keep in touch with you, so do reach out to us. You'll be able to find us at our website. That's www.holtonbaptists.org.uk. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram if you search for at Holton Baptists. And we hope that you will join us again next time as we share the word of God and the love of Jesus Christ with you. God bless.